Dr. Lynn Hapgood, who is the author of Margins of Desire, uh, about the suburbs of London in the late 19th, early 20th century, and Outside Modernism, the pursuit of the English novel at the beginning of the 20th century, which are available. I will put them in the football library because you've also written Eddie Hapgood, footballer from Beyond the Touchline, which is uh, very rare for pitch to publish a hardback priced at 1999. I've got a hardback coming out at 1699, but I really should stop talking about it. And it's about the Youth Cup. So unfortunately, your dad is not in this book because he played before the Youth Cup existed. Yeah. And uh, in the flap um, at the front, it tells you that you will discover a gripping life story of success and adulation Tragic reversals and vindication. I don't want to talk about um, the libel and the slander too much because there's just too much else to cover. But you lived through that. You saw the workings of the legal system when you were very young, is how I'll phrase that. I think that that experience I'd more explain as saying it was the first time that I'd really understood how hostile the world could be because Bath turned against us. We were ostracised. And my younger brother, who was at primary school, so little, was badly bullied, sneered at, and, you know, he just had an awful time, would come home crying. I was at a, a grammar school. It was much more sort of protected from the football world. I was shunned by people that I thought, thought were friends who wouldn't do anything with me because they'd been told by their parents not to. And that was when the world, we had to shrunk, shrink back into ourselves to protect ourselves because suddenly the world had become this unfriendly place. And before that, it hadn't. It hadn't been. It had just been a lovely place. And, and Dad had been welcomed by everybody and people were so proud of him and would talk about him to me. And then suddenly that, that barrier got dropped because he'd had the cheek, he'd had the face to challenge lies. And that was a real eye-opener for us, even though we were so young. So how did you deal with that afterwards? As, a, as someone who went into academia, which also seems to be a very closed shop. Or from your experience, was academia not? No, I think because I was lucky. I mean, I retired in 2008 and I was just, it was just changing in universities before, before I, I retired. But it was nothing like it is now. Universities have changed their nature. It must be very hard to work within a university now. I mean, I was, it was amazing. I didn't get appointed to Nottingham Trent until I was 40. I mean, that, that would never happen now unless you were somebody spectacular shipped in from the US or something. You know, they took me at face value. I'd come in late. I'd done my research. They liked me. You know, I got qualifications as a teacher. I'd got experience as a teacher behind me. And they put me in. I ended up there as, as head of department. You know, and I was a researcher. I went to Australia on conferences. I were, you know, it was a different world. It really was. You could be a proper academic. There was a Gareth Malone series where he taught kids at a South Oxy school how to sing, and they gave a concert at the Merchant Taylor's uh, annual joint concert with St Helens. And I always remember him leading the kids in a chant of who we are, so we tell them we're from South Oxy. So whenever I see South Oxy written down, uh, I sing that song. And South Oxy is the other side. It is literally the other side of where I grew up. I grew up on Grange Road in Bushy and South Oxy is a footstep away. You can breathe and you're in South Oxy. You are closer to Carpenter's Park because I looked at where Raglan Gardens was and it's about 200 yards from Carpenter's Park Station. 
The Raglan Gardens is still there. I haven't been to visit the house, but this was the house where the Hapgood family settled for a couple of years uh, when Father Eddie was manager of Watford in the late 40s and the early 50s. So would you have been to Watford Town Centre to do the shopping and to hang out? Well, I was a bit too little to hang out. Very much too little to hang out. <laughs> How old was I when, when I went to, to Watford? 1948. I'd be about, yes, I'd be six or seven or something like that. Oh. So far, far. And even my elder sister would, I think, be too, too young to, to hang out. Well, I think that I, I don't remember Watford all that clearly. I remember things that I did in Watford, you know, how you have particular memories. And I remember Raglan Gardens, the street Raglan Gardens, very, very clearly. But Watford itself, I don't remember at all. My, my elder son, his, his daughter, the one that's in the photograph, she was born in Watford Hospital, that's not what it's called, but right by Vicarage Road. And that was the first time that I'd seen Vicarage Road. And I walked up there to have a look. And because I'd always intended to ask them if I could have a wander around and to get to know people. But, you know, researching a book like this, it just took me years to do. And I never had time to do those last things, you know, to just chat to people about things. So that was sad. But I did see the outside of Vicarage Road. (laughs) I was born in that hospital. Uh, So I always say that the first thing I must have seen after I was, after I was, mum was discharged with me, was the stadium. And on match days, they've had to install a big road around Watford so that people can get to the hospital during match days, as it particularly. But yeah, it's incredible. Vicarage Road has a hospital and a football stadium there. And that football stadium in the 1980s, which was around the time your dad passed away, uh, passed away in on Good Friday, 1973. So he didn't Great, yeah. see... The Graham Taylor era, but he was able to see the Arsenal double winners. I know he'd had a stroke, but was he conscious that Arsenal had won the league and FA Cup double in 1971? Yes, he was. But it's rather a sad story about that because he was really ill at 71 and he got an invitation from Arsenal to go to the, the banquet and he didn't answer it because he never really knew it had arrived, you know. Um, Mum obviously had got it, but they were frantic about him and his health. And Arsenal didn't get an answer back, and so they just felt he'd not bothered, you know. And that's another little sad moment in the story. Which this book seems to... Well, it's not catharsis, really, and it's not setting scores. It's, what are you trying to do with this book? Which is I wanted to look really at the nature of greatness, which, as you know, is the sort of favourite conversation of all football fans everywhere. Is he's great? Is he the greatest? Etc. I wanted to really look at what greatness meant. He was completely, indisputably, a great footballer because everybody agreed on that one. But somehow there was something else about him that people would always say there's something else, and so I had to look at him as a father and see how that contributed to his greatness but then I had to look at him in the context of football at the time that's the third story in my story isn't it the context of football at the time his greatness was 50% because football at that time was a working class game and footballers were heroes but 50% his downfall because it became quite a brutal world which he found very difficult to deal with So with Arsenal, I know that people will say, you know, I've criticised Arsenal, but I'm actually not particularly criticising Arsenal. What I'm trying to do is tell the story of a man in this particular context 
where football club directors, they were just in another world. They weren't abusing the footballers. They weren't being cruel to footballers. They simply saw them as workers. And when their work was done, that was it. Dad never found that possible to understand. He never grasped class at all. He felt that everybody, he genuinely felt that everybody had their contribution to make and that's what you responded to. And he saw no no difference between him and Herbert Chapman, no difference between him and George Allison or between all the aristocrats on the Arsenal board. He thought it was the Arsenal family and he was part of it and that was a joyous and triumphant thing to do. So that third story I was trying to tell was, in fact, to show that that was not true. He didn't see what the real situation was. And it caused him such suffering, you know, because it made him so happy, unhappy in his later days. God, there is a whole book. David Hepworth uh, is a great music writer. And he said there's a great book to be written about music in the class system, football in the class system. You have to write this. Someone has to write this book. It can't be me unless, well, fine. I'll do it if you want me to. But just as you were saying that, I realised that Eddie Hepgood never played in a World Cup because at that time the FA said, no, we're not sending an England team to this World Cup. If that isn't balderdash, I don't know what is. Was, was your dad ever sad as he'd sit and watch England win a World Cup? Yards from where he used to play. Must have been really, really sad. Yes, he never actually made that specific comment, but yes, he would because he would glory in beautiful football. You know that yeah. goes without a shadow of doubt. Um, I can't remember discussing it though. The thing is, he came out of a, an era where England was supposed to be like the creme de la creme. You didn't have to notice anybody else, didn't? As you say, the reason why the FA didn't go into the World Cup because they they said that they're not proper footballers. We're the best. Yeah, God save when the king, empire, and all that. Them. Yeah. It amuses me now. You you triggered a memory. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter who was kicking a ball. If somebody was kicking a ball, a lad on the street or some magnificent French team or some magnificent Argentinian team, he would watch. He was just spellbound by watching people kick balls. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds funny, doesn't it? But... <laughs> yeah. Hobbies, watching ball kickers. Well, we codified the law. So... The FA did wonderful things, putting in a structure for organised football. There are several aspects of the English FA, not least that they call themselves the FA, when Eddie was captain of England, the FA, not the English FA, in the same way that we've got the Football Association of Wales. But playing for England in the 30s, this was a very good side. Did he maintain friendships with people, not just from Arsenal, but from his time at England? And would he get like postcards and round robin Christmas letters from, I don't know, Cliff Bastin or George Camsell, someone like that? Well, with uh, Arsenal friends would be slightly different. International people, he always stayed in touch with Stan Cullis. Yes. Um, and I don't know about how, how long he stayed in touch with Stanley Matthews, but he was always in touch with Stanley Matthews. But it was quite it was quite difficult for for footballers to be friends. I wonder if it still is. I I find that quite intriguing because they have to move around a lot and their loyalties have to shift. And wherever they go, their loyalties must be focused. And as you well know, a footballer who's a brilliant player for England now, in one season later, will be dropped and we won't hear of him again. Are they going to be friends with the person that took their place? 
You know, there's always these shifting feelings, jealousies, resentments, movings around, kissing the badge here, kissing the badge mm. there. It's very much a shifting sands. You have to work hard to stay friends with somebody in football, I think. I'd love to know if that's still the case or whether money makes it a different different situation. I think, and I use Aaron Ramsey in his, as an example here, we never hear anything about Aaron Ramsey being in trouble. We obviously heard that he was winding down his contract. But, and, and whenever he gets injured, someone famous passes away, which is a ludicrous kind of clickbaity thing. But I use Ramsey as, as an example of the postmodern footballer in the way that the modern footballer would be all flash and flash the cash because football has never had this kind of money relative to the average wage. Whereas now, if you're a young player like Bukayo Saka, money's fine, but it's not going to make you happy. Bukayo has grown up with the Arsenal youth team, uh, who never won the Youth Cup in his time, by the way. Haven't won the Youth Cup since 2009. Um, and more on that in the book. The core of the Arsenal team nowadays, Maitland-Niles has gone out on loan, but it was lovely seeing Arsenal-Watford that Saka, Smith-Rowe, White, Ramsdale, who looks like a fab goalkeeper, I think he might play in goal for the World Cup. This is really good. And it reminded me that before the influx of foreign talent, these were just lads. Obviously, um, Eddie was Bristol and Kettering, but there would have been a fair smattering of London lads with the team of all the talents coming through in the 30s. So it must have made your dad a bit more worldly, knowing that uh, players from across Britain were coming to play for the elite of the elite. And Eddie was part of the elite of the elite. Oh, yes, absolutely. On that level, that's certainly true. Yes. And there was a terrific mutual respect. Um, but the thing is that when you joined a team in that time, you stayed there, didn't you? And so there was time for relationships to develop. So unless you were injured, which was always obviously, you know, the career ending, if you had a bad injury, on the whole, the same team turned out. We've been yearning for the same team to turn out at Arsenal for years. You know, during the last years of, of Benga, you didn't know who was going to play every week. You know, it was always being shuffled around. And um, Arteta has this way of treating the football field as a, as a chessboard, you know, and moving pieces around as if players don't have particular talents or particular strengths that can just slot in anywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been such a joy watching this season you know, the same players turning out each week, you know, so you can get your heroes and you can cheer them and you can look for them, see what they're doing. Yes, that's, that's been really good, I agree. But they're also relatable. If I sat next to Ben White, for instance, who, from all I've heard when he was at Brighton, is a lovely lad, um, future captain of Arsenal as well. It's not so much that I want local players rather than foreign players, because I'm sure Tommy Yasu and um, who's the right back? Tierney. Yes, Kieran Tierney plays there as well. Uh, oh, Tierney's definitely in the Hapgood mould. He seems like a good character as well. He feels like someone whose infectious gaiety would be seen around the uh, training ground, much like your dad's. Um, yeah, he, he's terrific. He's Yes, he's absolutely terrific. He's a blind player as well. Yes. He can send the ball right across the pitch to the player's toe. That's fantastic. And yet they're the Arsenal players now, a century, a century on now, different kits, different rules, because I think the offside rule has changed even since the 30s. VAR, imagine, having oh, yeah. VAR in the 30s, yes. Yeah, I try but to it is, I mean, Arsenal are promising at the moment, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we can relax and begin to enjoy it a bit more. Well, you're, you're up 
it'll be very tough because you're up against Roy and Ray uh, in uh, as as this goes out. It's two p.m. on the sixth of March. Uh, Watford Arsenal, and uh, we need we need home wins and. Roy Hodgson, who I'm... If you gave this book to Roy Hodgson, he'd read it. So I would definitely suggest, because he follows, and he will know he follows in the footsteps of Eddie Hapgood as Watford manager. Whether he'll stay there four years, four minutes, or four weeks uh, is up to the trigger-happy chairman, who, if Watford go down, he loses £150 million just like that. And it's not fun at all. Uh, Maybe I'll go back and try and watch some of these Pathé news footage of uh, Eddie Hapgood and Arsenal in the 1930s. Um, the medals, do, you, do the family have them or do the club have all of them now? They were most, most of them were stolen when he was on an international trip um, and the police said, you'll never get them back because they'll be melted down by now. The history of all those souvenirs is pretty, is pretty bleak, actually, because we haven't got very much, actually. So the medals are mostly lost. The caps we had until 2010, all the caps we had to 2010, and then my brother loaned them for an exhibition in Burnley. The one brother, my elder brother lived in Burnley. Well, all his family still lived there, and they were nicked. Mm. And they were never... There's just one that I've still got, because I borrowed it from my mum for my son to take to school to do a show-and-tell class. And so we've got one cap left that Sam's protecting with his life there, you know. And the others were stolen. We never got them back. People are so... That's it. People are so mean. Yeah, I've worked that out. I'm 34 now. The book begins with you discovering two suitcases. Are they still in your possession with all the memorabilia and writing and notes and letters? Well, one of them seems to have vanished through the years, but one of the suitcases is still there in Burnley. Most of them, well, in fact, Tony looked after all the stuff, you know, and when he died in 2011, some of it has begun to drift down to my brother Mike because we're sorting through it. But we had a fire. When my parents moved to Weymouth, all our possessions were were put in a warehouse with Pickford's, the removal firm. Uh And we hadn't been in Weymouth two years, I think it was two years, and we got a letter, about one paragraph, telling us that the warehouses had burnt down and everything had been lost. And my, I was at that time not at home, and my bro- younger brother was at home, and when they drove back down from Bath going up to check everything, see what had happened, they had one suitcase, the one suitcase, and that had been stored separately because it was just papers inside. So from the furniture and all the other things. So that was the last thing that we had left. But the-, the thing is, in a funny sort of way, I don't mind because you were saying about the Pathé News and seeing him play. Part of the part of the beauty of Dad's football is that nobody can see it anymore. All we can hear the press, you know, would go wild just trying to describe how he played. Artistic football, aesthetic football. You know, he should be a striker. He's so light. He's so quick. His, he doesn't touch anybody. His feet just take the ball, you know, and so on. And it's so magical. It creates this something of belonging to another world. Yeah, it does. Because these journalists were writing in the tradition of someone who only the 70-odd thousand who were at Highbury knew about it, unless it was on the radio or or these clips were that. Whereas now, the match report, I don't know if it's endangered, but it's unnecessary because of clipping and 
things going out instantly and you have during the game fans baiting each other and I'm with Southgate, love the game, hate the industry, hate the fans. But in this suitcase was an unpublished memoir. Eddie had written Football Ambassador, which came out in 1945, uh, which was after the Second World War, football really did have this renaissance, although not at Watford so much. Um, I think it was late 50s and 60s, Watford did much better. But you have been able to use the unpublished memoir uh, to inform your book. And as someone who has written about social history and about literature, uh, that must have been fun, using the academic skills of dissertation uh, to weigh up this evidence. Were you ever objective? Were you able to be objective when telling the story of your father? I suppose I would claim objectivity. Not in the loving of him, but I think I make it pretty clear in the book where I'm speculating and where I'm saying things as a daughter. I mean, I spent months, weeks, years in British Library reading all the autobiographies, biographies, um, football books of that time. And I, I, I can tell you, Johnny, I sat there thinking at some point there'll be a skeleton in the cupboard here. <laughs> yes. This wonderful man that I've loved all this time and thought so highly of, there'll be a skeleton in the cupboard somewhere. But there was not a single skeleton in the cupboard. There wasn't even just a, a caveat, a doubt. Everybody that has written about him always writes about him on the assumption that he had complete integrity. That was objective but fitting into my personal feeling about him. So I no doubt I must swing off the line somewhere along the book because I loved him very much. But I think that if you if you go to the text, if you go to the papers, I mean, it's amazing. Over 12 years, the press just went on churning out stuff about him, saying how wonderful he was. Was it the case that a footballer like Eddie Hapgood, who started as a, a teen, well, they weren't called teenagers then, as a young man uh, at Arsenal, played his part in uh, the, all the victories of that year? Couldn't play in Europe, of course, because European competition didn't really exist and couldn't play in the World Cup for England. Played loads of home internationals, so he would have been known in Wales and Northern Ireland and Scotland. But the press, would they have made him a kind of figure in the way that they made Paul Gascoigne a figure or Wayne Rooney or David Beckham. This keeps happening with English footballers. As you say, quote-unquote Eddie Hapgood became public property, but Eddie Hapgood, without quotation marks, was your dad, uh, who would afford holidays and put food on the table. But this kind of possession of footballers by journalists and by fans, it's not not cricket for me. But I think everyone needs icons and heroes because we've needed that for centuries. And the footballer is just the latest incarnation of, like, Rob Roy or Genghis Khan. (laughs) Yes, but I I think that's the fourth story in my book, in that he was made a particular kind of hero because of the historical period he was playing in. So if you go and play in front of Mussolini or you go and play in front of Hitler, you're constantly, your team, not him personally, obviously, but your team is constantly in the news as holding England's heritage up, the England's nobility up, England's integrity up, etc. And he's the captain. He's the one that carries that, isn't he? And there is absolutely no doubt. I mean, I think you're wrong about the, the European thing because he played a lot in Europe and he was absolutely worshipped there. You know, letters pouring in from places like Holland and Switzerland and 
Germany, obviously, and Belgium, they thought the world of him too. And in fact, after that particular, the, the famous German match with the Berlin salute, yes. You know, in fact, the German FA, whatever the I can't remember what it was actually called, but the German FA produced yeah, a book saying how privileged they were, you know, to see this amazing football. You know, they would never see such football again, kind of thing. So he he rode that tide, and I think that gave him another level to the golden aura, you know, of being a hero, a footballing hero. So it's sort of, he was obviously, I thought he was a wonderful man, and I think that's proven that he had a lot of integrity. But he did also have that whole political context that also blessed him. The bibliography, which features about 30 different newspapers uh, going from Sussex to Sunderland. Um, (laughs) It also includes this Arsenal Stadium mystery, um, which came out in 1939. I was so pleased when I found out about that. I can't remember when. But for footballers to be on celluloid, almost unprecedented. That was part of the promotion uh, deal. But the fact that there was a demand for it because of Arsenal's success, and they filmed it in the marble halls of Highbury, as they (laughs) have to be called. Um, Have you seen the film? Yes, yes. I got a copy. And it is every now and again. It is actually on film four. It does crop up every now and again. Yeah, I I must watch it because it seems like a, a good fun caper. Um, oh, it's a good film. It is. It's a good mystery film. It's not the acting of the players isn't particularly spectacular. But what amuses me about it, as has been an extra delight for this season, is that um, the other the team that we're playing at the beginning of the Arsenal Stadium mystery is Brentford. Uh-huh. And then Brentford, you know, the war and everything, and Brentford wasn't back in the Premier League. Well, there wasn't a Premier League, obviously, but now it's back in the Premier League, and I'm going to watch Arsenal play Brentford in two weeks' time, is it? You know, I think it's very soon, anyway. And, um, yes, and I just think that's hilarious. Well, <laughs> but I... the press don't seem to have picked that up. They don't seem to have noticed that. Oh, they... anybody comment, anyway. Look, if, if Henry Winter knows anything, he will know that Arsenal-Brentford was the match from the Arsenal Stadium mystery. So closer to the game, which um, we're talking on the 28th, this will go out, uh, I think, on the 25th of February. Uh, But the fixture at the Emirates, Arsenal-Brentford, is on the 19th of February. So do enjoy that game. I'm sure they do know. They know these journalists. They're just amazing the way they keep track of things. But I haven't heard it mentioned yet. No, not yet. It'll come. Uh, I must just quickly do a roll call of sons who have written books about their dads. Rob White wrote about his dad, John, in the, a particularly brilliant book with Dame Julie Welch, um, which was, is it Ghost? Something I can never remember the title. Ghost of White Hart Lane, I think it's called. Callum Best has written about his dad, George. Ted Beckham has written about his son, David. And quite rightly, one of the best football books, because it's not about football, is My Father and Other Working Class Heroes by Gary Imlach. Oh, that's a wonderful book. I love that book. Oh, it's it's came along in about 2006, uh, which was bef- way before the Football Library launched. Um, but Gary paints his dad, Stuart, as someone he, he knew. He knew his dad was a footballer. He'd grown up knowing it. And his dad went into coaching as well. Whereas oh. you can definitely divorce dad from Eddie Hapgood Arsenal and England captain it must have been pretty not surreal but when he died in 1973 
Because an England captain had died, his obituaries would have been in newspapers. There would have been condolences from the FA, perhaps from Watford's board at that time. Jim Bonza maybe said something. Um, it's now 50 years. Do you remember much of that period of your life? Oh, absolutely. When he died, yes. He's, his obituaries came out on my birthday and I always thought that was such a cruel thing. Because mm. <laughs> um, it was Easter time. And Easter is a movable feast. And so my birthday very, very, very rarely falls actually in Easter because it's April the 22nd. So it's quite quite late. Easter's very late this year. But then Dad died on Good Friday and then the obituaries came out on Sunday, which was Easter Sunday. And that's where my birthday was. Oh, yes. And I mean, Arsenal came to to the funeral and yes, all that. Do I remember it? I met his family then. I met quite a few people, so they came to the funeral. So I met my uncles and aunts. Yes, of course, all of them, all all 20 of them. No, not, no, not, no, the Kettering ones didn't, didn't come, but dads did. And in fact, I met them since as well when the plaques have gone up in Bristol. I was so shattered when my father died. I was in Cornwall on a holiday, because it was Easter, with my baby son, and a policeman came to tell me. And I just went out onto the cliff where we were, and I just couldn't believe it. And then I had to pack everything in the car. And driving from Cornwall to Leamington in those days was a hell of a long journey. And I just sat there in the car. Yes, that's all I can say. Gosh, yes. And, well, you are a credit to him. I was just... I picked up Brian Glanville's book of obituaries, and because Eddie died in 1973... Hapgood does not make Brian Glanville's Arsenal 11, even though, well, he was captain of Arsenal and England. Um, so I can only imagine that uh, he predeceased the book. But there aren't many left backs. I was trying a few years ago to come up with a list of players who would represent a roster. And you would pick from that roster only 11 players. And at left back, I could only really think of six players from before about 1995 who were legendary oh. left backs. And I would imagine your dad is one of them. So he would have been up against some of the mightiest wingers. Hang on, he was a left-back. Stan Matthews was a right winger. Did he get the best of Stan Matthews? They wouldn't have well, played I together. Well, it depends. On, well, he, Stanley Matthews is much younger than him. Yeah. But they did play against one another a lot. But, of course, they also played together a lot in the international team. So... And Stanley Matthews, was a, I mean, he was one of the, the most enthusiastic supporters of, of that and everything he writes. He says how wonderful he was and he was the one person that could stop him and so on, you know. Oh. Um, but when you say that about the roster of... Um, when, when the millennium came round, 2000, you know, there was loads of stuff about, you know, who's the greatest, this, that and the other. And um, the Times put, put him among the thousand best athletes, everybody, you know, runners to footballers. And he got in in that thousand. And the news of the world, does the news of the world still exist? It's now the sun, sun on Sunday. Right. Or well, the news of the news of the world chose him, chose him. I couldn't believe it for the best as the fullback for the um, England team. If you were choosing the best English players. I think I know. know why. I think the editor was Piers Morgan at the time, who was oh, a yes. massive well, 
Ah, oh, right, okay. But I mean, I couldn't believe it when I opened and I thought, heavens above, you know, he died in 73, he stopped playing in 43, and here he is, you know, in 2000, and people still remember him. That was just a brilliant feeling. Before I forget, Dr. Lynn Hapgood, you do get your football library card with the same photo of your father with the wonderful schnoz. Um, that, that has seen, seen a few fists. Did you see, was his nose always like that to you? He kind of... Well, he broke it three times. It was broken three yes. times, I think. <laughs> and you looked at all the other dads with their straight noses, and you must have thought, well, none of them was captain of England. None, none of them had Matt Sindelar's elbow in his face. Um, <laughs> well, he would say, I was, I was good-looking enough to be a film star, remember? Ah, say, yeah. Yes, he was, correct. Correct. <laughs> in the same way that we're now seeing kind of the shoring up of music, you're seeing Elton John having number ones because he knows that the next generation are not going to remember Elton John unless he's there. Football before 1992 did exist. It's just there's not as brilliant video footage of 28,000 angles of Lionel Messi as there is about, say, even Ronaldinho or Ronaldo. Do you have a favourite footballer? Are you going to put this in if I tell you? <laughs> yeah, <fantastic. laughs> Because I feel I should choose an Arsenal player, and there are many, many wonderful Arsenal players. Bergkamp, for instance, absolutely amazing. But I've always had a really soft spot for the qualities of Steven Gerrard. I love his loyalty to the club. I love the fact that he doesn't make a fuss about anything, but he always gives 100%. And when there was all that debate on Lampard, Gerrard for the England team. Mm -hmm. And I always thought Gerrard was in another class. But because he was in another class, he had to fall into place to support Lampard, who'd only got one trick pony skills. But he never made a fuss. He never questioned it. He just went out there and needed his damnedest. I've had a lot of respect for for Steven Gerrard. Obviously, and when Villa plays Arsenal later this season, uh, actually, when is that game? I've got it. Oh, it's the 19th of March. It's a lunchtime kickoff. But two things from that. Interesting. Well, that's the thing. It has often has been a second team to me for a long time, actually, because it's Birmingham, of, of course. course. It's just around the corner, yes. Oh, but I want to beat them absolutely hollow. That goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I won't stop respecting him. There's two things. A class. Frank Lampard has a GCSE in Latin. Stephen Gerrard grew up on a council estate. So there's the class thing there. And now we're seeing, we're talking at the end of January, Frank Lampard is being linked to the Everton job. It's, I think it's because the media want Lampard Gerrard to continue into the managerial rank because it's a storyline that has run yeah. for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Whereas I suppose Eddie Hapgood never had it. There was never a rival for the left-back position for England or for Arsenal in the 30s. Yeah, once he got it, it stayed his, yes. Yeah, which is an, an immense credit and... You've you've become a British Library. I was <laughs> when you were talking about skeletons in uh, the library. You researched this book for twelve years. Not that I wanted you to not finish it, but I've, ne- I've never actually sat in the British Library because you can't denote, you can't etch any of the books. And I like the fact that I can make light pencil markings in this copy of your book, which is priced nineteen pound ninety nine. One of the books of the year already, and that'll be it for you. No more books. 
No, Nigel Wright. I'm an obsessive writer. I will write. It might be a football book. I don't know. But I wait for my hand to decide what to write about. But that whole business of researching, developing an idea, putting it together and then making it live. I mean, that's that's what I love. Well, and especially when you've got a former England captain who... Well, Stephen Gerrard has already written two memoirs. As, as indeed your dad did, one of which was published. So next to Football Ambassador uh, by Eddie Hapgood goes Lynn Hapgood's Eddie Hapgood footballer from beyond the touchline. Lynn, have a wonderful time at Arsenal Brentford. And thank you very much, John. It's lovely talking to you. <laughs>